Lots of channels, nothing to watch, especially if you're searching for the truth. It's time to interrupt your regularly scheduled programs with something actually worth watching. Salem News Channel, straightforward, unfiltered, with in-depth insight and analysis from the greatest collection of conservative minds like Hugh Hewitt, Mike Gallagher, Sebastian Gorka, and more. Find truth. Watch 24-7 on SNC.TV and on Local Now, Channel 525. Welcome to the Pat Williams Power Hour on the new 94.9 FM and AM 950 WTLN. This is your hour when Orlando Magic Senior Vice President Pat Williams sits down and speaks with authors who have written books on topics of interest and insight for listeners like you. And now, here's your host, Pat Williams. Well, welcome once again, folks, to the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. <clears throat> You're listening to the new 94.9 FM and AM 950 WTLN in Orlando. We're always very pleased when you join us. Uh, Alan Dempsey, uh, he's the engineer, does it well. And Andrew Herdliska produces this show each weekend. Uh, Nika Maples joins us from Fort Worth, Texas, here in the first half hour. Uh, her book is called Hunting Hope. Dig through the darkness to find the light. Nika, great to talk to you. Thanks for joining me. Yes, I appreciate the chance to be with you today. Uh, before we dive into the uh, different details of your book... Uh, there's an introduction called The Dark Season. Uh, can you uh, outline that for us and uh, give us a preview here of what we're going to be talking about? Well, we all know what it feels like to walk into a season that we were not expecting. Things may be going well for us. I, I refer to that as a summer or autumn season when things are comfortable and fun, and then suddenly the winter winds hit. And whether that feels like the loss of a job and financial insecurity or a medical diagnosis and fear for the future or a a loss of a loved one and a newfound way of coping every day with the onset of grief. All of those situations feel like winter has come into our lives. And so I refer to it in the book as the dark season. And we feel when we're in those winter times that we'll never be happy again that we'll never have another morning that we wake up and are excited about the day. And the truth of the matter is that God is with us even in those dark seasons, and he's using um, every moment. No moment of those dark seasons will be wasted. He uses every moment to convince us that we are loved and to show us of his His sweet fatherhood in our lives and to to care for us and love us through, and we really will reach a moment where we come into spring. But during the dark season, it doesn't seem that way. Nika, the first chapter is called He Let It Happen. Uh, I want you to talk about that. That chapter was perhaps the most difficult to write, and I wanted to put it in the order to have it first because that's the elephant in the room, so to speak. That's the thing that everybody wonders about. This terrible thing that has come into my life, God let it happen. So I had to write about that in the very first chapter. In that chapter, I I actually refer to a story of a friend of mine who was cutting down some trees on his property. He's an outdoorsman and um, has done that many times. And one time, several years ago, this big oak, fell on top of him and and broke his back. And he went through a long season of painful recovery. That was a a winter for him, for sure. And he had to face the fact that God knew that tree was falling and didn't stop it and didn't help him move out of the way. And this is a person who's been a Christian his whole life. Those are the kinds of stories that we hear about. Sometimes the stories that we experience ourselves that leave us wondering, where was God? Why didn't he help me in that moment? Why didn't he stop it from happening? Well, the truth of the matter is that he has allowed us to have free will in this world, and he has set the world into motion, and he is there for us every second. But there are some things that just will happen, and we have to turn to him during those times anyway and trust him anyway, that he can bring good out of any situation 
for those who are called according to his purpose. And every single one of us are called according to his purpose. And if we will walk in that purpose, we will see the good that he'll bring out of it. If we look at our situations and say, I can't see any good, well, that's true because you're not God. You and I are not God, so we can't see any good that could come out of a painful situation. But he can, and he does bring about that good when we surrender to him. Let's talk about he knows how much it hurts. <laughs> yeah, that second chapter is the one that that flows from the fact that he he has allowed something to happen. And please know that just because God allows something to happen doesn't mean that he endorses it or condones it. There are a lot of things that happen in this world that, that grieve God's heart, that grieve the Holy Spirit. And um, it doesn't mean that he is smiling on every situation in our lives. Um, but he does allow those things that will cause us to turn to him. And so many times, I know many of your listeners have experienced that, Pain is what causes us to turn to Him almost more than anything else. And we know that God knows how much it hurts because He's experienced those things. When He came as a man and Jesus experienced betrayal, then there's no betrayal that we have known on this earth that is anything like the betrayal that Jesus felt. And so we know that He's with us when we are betrayed, and He he knows what it felt like. Um, to be turned over to death by a close friend. Um, Jesus knew the pain, physical pain, beyond what we can imagine. And so I've experienced pain every day since um, about the time I was 12. I was diagnosed with systemic lupus, and um, that causes arthritic pain and several other kinds of um, connective tissue um, discomfort. And I still know that there's not a day that I've lived that Jesus has not fully understood. He's well acquainted with pain. And then also in my life, when I was 20, I suffered a massive stroke that left me quadriplegic. Mm. And through that experience, I, I, I became acquainted with sorrow. And we know that Jesus was also acquainted with sorrow. To see his own people rejecting him, turning away from him, and then to know that he's willing to die for us. And then every day, there are people who choose not to live for him and, and choose to walk away from his offer of eternal life and everlasting love. Um, it's a sorrow for him. It breaks his heart. And so he knows the sorrow that I experienced, too, when I felt that terrible loss of mobility and of dreams, really, that I had for my life when I was 20 years old. Now, uh, Nika, let's get into uh, a third topic. He has a plan. Mm-hmm. That was also the natural progression of, of where I felt my this book needed to go, is um, right after we recognized that he allowed something to happen and he knew it was going to hurt. And he, but the next step is recognizing that he still has a plan. There's no moment when our lives are ever finished, never a moment until we breathe our last breath. No one is too old. No one is too done. No one is too um, worn out or finished in our lives, to not have that plan continue that God has for us. In my life, um, when I experienced that devastating stroke that left me quadriplegic, the doctor said that I had as little as 48 hours to live. If I lived at all, I would remain in a vegetative state, they thought. Well, I could have, at that moment, laid there in the ICU and thought, it's over, I'm done. At 20 years old, my life is finished. Mm. But the truth of the matter is that God had a plan, and he was willing to work that beautiful plan into my life as much as I was willing to receive it. That's the key, really, is he always has a plan for us, but he's a gentleman, and he doesn't force his will on us. We have to be willing to receive it and to walk in it and to pray it through and to participate. He wants a relationship with his children. He doesn't want to be a father that um, decides things will happen for them. He says, here's a good thing that I have planned for you. Do you want it? Do you want to walk with me? Because if you do, if you want this relationship with me, if you want the plan that I have prepared for you, then you can have it. Let's hold hands and, and move forward together. That's what he did with me. I learned how to walk again. I learned how to talk again. Mm. I started a um, program so that I could be a public school teacher, and I was certified as a teacher and taught high school English 
and um, middle school English for 10 years. And then I was named Texas Secondary Teacher of the Year um, in 2007. A, a fantastic award that represents 300,000 teachers in the state. And I was one that they selected to to be a voice for teachers. I got the chance to travel the state and, and all over the nation, speaking to teachers, encouraging them, speaking on behalf of teachers, and being a voice for, for people who sometimes feel as if they are not heard by the general public who may not know how hard teachers work every day and, and sacrifice for their students and truly love, love their students. My guest, Nika Maples, we're talking about her book, Hunting Hope. Uh, more with Nika right after this <clears throat> on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour right here on the new 94.9 FM and AM 950 WTL. More of the Pat Williams Power Hour in just a moment on the new 94.9 FM and AM 950 WTLN. Listening to the Pat Williams Power Hour on the new 94.9 FM and AM 950 WTLN. And now, here's Pat. Nika Maples is my guest from Fort Worth, Texas. We're talking about her new book, Hunting Hope. Nika, we've talked before the break about he has a plan. Now, uh, you write, he hears you. Uh, I want you to uh, expand on that. Mm-hmm. Well, in, in that chapter, I really explore the idea of praying with shameless audacity. And, and that's what the Bible says, is that in Luke 11, it says that we can pray with shameless audacity and come before his throne and trusting that he's a God who loves us, a Father who cares deeply for us, and who is standing ready to answer at any time. And that's what I was experiencing as I, before the break when we were talking about paralysis and how I was going through a long recovery and then was in public schools and received Texas Secondary Teacher of the Year. I knew through all of that that he was listening, that he heard me, he heard my cries, and that he was delivering his good into my life again and again and again in response to my willingness to participate with him and his plan for my life. So to all of your listeners who are going through any kind of situation that has them pressed against the wall between a rock and a hard place, so to speak, and who feel the pain of a situation they never experienced and never expected, please know that God has a plan for you and he hears you. So cry out to him. And one thing that I learned in crying out to God is that there's no right or wrong way to do it, really. He just wants to be with us. He wants to hear our voices. And plenty of people feel some hurt toward God, and that stops them from praying because they've been taught in their religious upbringing that we are not supposed to come to God with raw feelings like that. We have to present our best selves, that we have to talk to him the way we would some revered teacher. Well, God is a revered teacher, but he's the creator of the universe. There's nothing that he's ever, there's nothing that is that he has not seen. There's nothing that is that he has not heard before. And so when I come to him now, I bring every raw emotion. And during those difficult times in my life, I came to him with emotions that kind of had a volume to it. (laughs) I would cry out in um, fear or anger, and God can take it. God can definitely hear all of those emotions from us, and he wants our whole heart. So don't hold back. If you are feeling, wait a second, I can't really be myself to God, then that's where you've got um, a miscalculation of your relationship with him. The truth is he's the only one that you can be yourself with fully, and he's known you since before you were born. So bring your request to him. And that is straight from Philippians 4, 4 through 8. It says, do not be anxious about anything, but with prayer and petition and with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So when we bring our concern to God, He gives us an exchange, and that exchange is peace. It's peace that's beyond explanation, and it's peace that will sustain us through any situation. 
And that's what we need to guard our hearts and minds so that fear and anxiety and worry can't even have a place to dwell because our hearts are guarded by peace. That's what I mean when I say that He hears us. He hears our concerns when we bring those concerns in all their various forms to Him. Uh, The book is called Hunting Hope. Uh, Nika Maples is the author from Fort Worth, Texas. Uh, The book is broken down into uh, two parts. Part one, God's character. Part two, our character. And Nika, I want to jump into that second part because there are five really interesting topics you write about. The first one, you say, choose humility. Uh, I want you to expand on that. That's right. I think when we when we resist any situation in our lives, when we strongly resist it and think this shouldn't have happened, that's a form of pride. We we want to have control over our lives, but the the God of the universe is the one who who knows what's best, and so it's a form of pride to shake our fist and say you know, this should never have happened. And while I just said two minutes ago to bring all your requests to God in all their various forms, absolutely do that. But do it from a place of humility. Um, My first step as a hope hunter is to start every day in a place of humility. Whether that is an action of getting on your knees to acknowledge Him first thing in the morning or maybe raising your hands in your closet and saying, you're the king of the universe just right before you get dressed in the morning or opening your hands in your lap to to pray right before you drive off in your car to go to work, whatever that small action is to show a step of humility, I recommend that in the mornings to say, I'm not in control. I give you control of my life because you're the one who knows what's best. And I trust that everything you bring into my life will work for my good and will bring me closer to you. I've learned to trust that. I've learned to believe him when he says that to me. And so that was the, that's the first step of being a hope hunter is choosing humility. The second is giving grace because plenty of people during your winter season are going to say and do the wrong thing. They might not do anything at all. They may forget how badly you're hurting and um, neglect to reach out to you and to, to minister hope to you. That Those things hurt. But human beings are often just going to do things that hurt because we don't think clearly, we're busy, whatever. Give grace to those people in your life who have not said and done the right thing. Maybe they've even done hurtful things. Um, Even on purpose, we're going to give grace because the healing that we need is born through grace. Um, It comes on the wings of grace. And we, we need that. We need healing. But when we're holding hurt, when we're holding on to hurt, when we're holding on to accusations toward another person or anything like that, then we have imprisoned ourselves. We, our hearts are not free. And so we give grace in order to walk freely in our lives and experience all the healing that God has for us. The way you get enough grace to give to others is to receive enough grace. From God, He always has more than enough to give us on any daily basis. The Word says that His mercies are new every morning. There's not a day that you wake up that His mercies have gone dry. So we come to Him and we ask Him, give me grace today. Give me grace to see the way you see, to love the way you love, to treat people the way you treat people, to turn the other cheek, to love my enemies, to pray for my enemies, to bless those who curse me. The Word actually says, Bless those who curse you. But how many of us actually do that? No, we turn around and we ignore those who curse us. We turn around and we, um, you know, dismiss those who curse us and say we never want to speak to them again. We we wish, we talk, we gossip about those who curse us. We slander those who curse us. We do all kinds of things but bless them. But blessing them starts with prayer. When we pray for people, when we pray for our enemies, when we pray for those who've hurt us, and we ask God to give them all the things that we want for ourselves, to bless them fully, then our hearts change, and we experience, we ask for a blessing for them, but we're the ones who get it um, when we pray. And then the third thing that I say in that section about refining our character 
is saying truth. Plenty of times in a winter season, we can't even find the words to pray, but we can repeat the words that somebody else has prayed. And songs are prayers. The Christian songs are prayers. Uh, a lot of times they're praise. And if someone has written down, taken the time to pen words of praise and prayer, then we, we need to sing along with that. And so it can change your day. If you're in your car and you're just listening to secular music, and uh, nothing wrong with that. I love pop music. But there are times when I'm, my heart's hurting, and that music doesn't really do anything for me. And I will force myself to change the channel to a Christian station and start singing along with the truth, the truth that God is still on the throne and still on the move, and He is for me, not against me, that He is a friend and a father, a good one. And those are the kinds of things that we can do to remind ourselves during a winter season that He is still God and still good. Talk about, uh, do this, Nika, uh, mm -hmm. keep going is your next to last topic, and I want you to expand on that. Sure. Um, I My motto for life is keep going, uh, because we tend to give up too soon, really. And so we keep, I encourage people to keep going, to press into God, to persevere. Uh, one of my very favorite verses is Romans 5, 5 through 8. It says, we rejoice in our sufferings because we know that sufferings produce perseverance. And perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not disappoint, because God, we know how God has dearly loved us and poured out the Holy Spirit into our hearts. Um, so when you read that, when you read that, suffering produces perseverance, and perseverance, character, and character, hope. I think a lot of people are taken aback, because they think, I thought during my suffering I was supposed to be hopeful. I thought I was supposed to just see hope. Well, you're not going to see hope. When you first start in your season of suffering, you're you're not going to see hope. It's going to see seem hopeless, actually, and that's the way it begins. Now you move into perseverance, and then you move into character building. And after character building, that's when you have what it takes to actually see hope in a suffering season that doesn't look like there's any hope. It's the perseverance and character building that allow you to see hope. The character building part is the part that is painful sometimes and is long and requires patience. But the perseverance that we gain um, enables us to keep going through it. And then the last point for a hope hunter is uh, to wait expectantly. We wait with hope. We wait with great expectation because we know that God is not going to disappoint us. He will deliver his best to us, and he will work with every single situation in our lives to produce what is good. Nika Maples, she's our guest uh, from Fort Worth. Her book is called Hunting Hope. Nika, I want you to summarize uh, what you have written about, what you've shared with us. Uh, what's what's the good word here? What's the bottom line to all this? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I think really that the main point of the book Hunting Hope is that we can find hope in a season of suffering, that nothing is ever hopeless. But seasons of suffering, the questions we have about suffering are really questions about sovereignty. Do we trust God enough to believe that He is always, always working for our good, that He's for us and not against us? And a lot of people ask the question, why did this happen? Why, why, why? But I think that why questions are distractors. They keep us away from the real questions, such as who is going to take care of me, and that's God. Who questions can wrap peace around the why questions. Also, how are you using this for me, Lord? I believe that your word says what is true, that you are for me, not against me. So if this situation is so painful and so so hard, then tell me how you're using this for me. But will any of us ever ask that question if we're distracted by why? Why did this happen? And we dwell on that, and we're never going to get an answer to why it happened, not in this lifetime. So we really miss out on the better question, what are you using this for in my life? How will you bless me through this situation? And who are you to me in this moment? Because we always are introduced to a new side of God's character, 
character traits that have been there all along, but that we won't know until we are in a certain situation. For instance, when we're abandoned, we meet God as the Father. When we have a medical diagnosis that is a surprise, we meet God as the healer. When we are in poverty and financial stress, we meet God as the provider. And, and when we're brokenhearted, we meet God as the lover. He, when, we're, when we're confused and, and in need of help, we meet God as a counselor. Suffering isn't pointless. It can always point, point to God if we allow it to. That's the crux of my book, Hunting Hope, is that I want to bring people a, a bit of comfort. Nika Maples has been our guest talking about her book, Hunting Hope. We've got another segment for you folks here on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. You're listening to the new 94.9 FM and AM 950 WTLN. More of the Pat Williams Power Hour in just a moment on the new 94.9 FM and AM 950 WTLN. Uh, John Kessler joins us from Munster, Indiana, the suburbs of Chicago. He's the chair and professor of pastoral studies at the Moody Bible Institute in Chicago. His new book is out. It is called The Radical Pursuit of Rest. And, uh, John, I'm uh, very, very pleased to have you with us. Well, Pat, I'm glad to be with you. Before we plow into the book, uh, I'm intrigued by the chair and professor of pastoral studies at the Moody Bible Institute. Uh, Expand on that. What does that mean? Sure. Well, I've been on the faculty of Moody uh, for the last uh, 22 years and uh, teaching in the pastoral studies department, and that's a department where we're training students primarily for church ministry, so uh, pastors, senior pastors. uh, We have a program that trains women to uh, serve the church in the area of women's ministries, uh, youth ministry, uh, Moody Bible Institute in, in general is committed to training the next generation of church leaders and parachurch leaders. So as a department chair, I both teach and then I exercise uh, leadership over the, over the pro- programs. What is your book about, John? Well, the, basically the, the theme of the book has to do with the, the central place that rest has in the life of the believer. So... Uh, I think, you know, we're living in an age today where, at least when I talk to people, the notion of rest, they all get sort of a wistful <laughs> expression on their face, as if it's not something that they experience very often. And we're it's, we're really living in a very uh, production-oriented culture, and that I think that that mentality has really uh, affected the Church, so that it's a, it's a context today where... We basically measure our value based on what we're able to produce, and if we're, and and of course that means we have to continually produce more. And the more that we produce, it's never going to be enough for us because we the bar keeps getting set higher. On the other hand, you have Jesus Christ who offers us one of the central promises is the promise of rest, where He says, "Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest." So that uh, it is the place of rest in the Christian life, and also the place of rest as, a, as the starting point for producing fruit in the Christian life. My uh, guest is John Kessler from the Chicago area. Uh, so now, let's get into the uh, nine topics you write about. Uh, the first one is called Restless Faith. Uh, can you explain that? Yes, I think that you know uh, it grows out of the, it grows out of this culture of productivity that shapes the culture at large. And you know, of course, churches aren't uh, they don't live apart from the culture. We're affected by the culture in which we live, and often the values that you see shaping the world around us find their way into the church. And I think you know what you have today is a church, that the way I would describe it, it's a kind of a frenetic culture where uh, it's a highly driven church where we're always trying to exceed whatever the current level of activity is. So, you know, if church attendance has grown, then it has to grow more. If, we, if our programs have expanded, 
they have to expand even more. I sort of compare it to the way automobile companies roll out new models every year. Every every year, the latest model needs to be better than the previous model, and so every year, the the latest church project needs to be more impressive than the last. It's it's really driven by a a fundamental assumption that that busier is better in the Christian life. And so the problem, of course, with this this sort of driven culture is that if we measure our devotion on the basis of what we're doing for God, then it's never going to be enough. So whatever I've done previously, I have to do more. Whatever I did in the past isn't sufficient. So it creates this kind of, uh, really actually it creates a sort of a kind of a works-oriented approach to the Christian life, which uh, I think drives us into the ground. Now let's get to uh, the next topic, the God who rests. Yeah, it's such an amazing thing when you consider that uh, rest, you know, I think we feel a little awkward about it because we feel, we, I think we tend to identify it with laziness. So when you consider that the first one to rest in the Scripture was not a man or a woman, it was God himself. That rest begins with God in Scripture, which is sort of a, a startling when you consider the nature of God. It's, it's in the account of Genesis that says that after God created all things, he rested. You have to ask yourself, why would that be the case? Because we know that God never sleeps, God never slumbers, he, he doesn't wear out. So whatever's happening with rest, with respect to God, it isn't that he wore himself out in creation and he needed to take a break, and therefore we need to take a break, too. I, I don't think you can also say that it's just simply symbolic, you know, that as if, as if God just appeared to rest in order to make a point, the way maybe a parent would if he was, if a parent was trying to encourage an unwilling child to take a nap. So God's rest is really the rest of completion, and uh, that's why it's the foundation for the Christian life. All that needs to be done has been done by God. You see that this. Uh, you see this reflected in the way that the Scripture talks about the, both uh, the work of Christ, where it talks about Jesus being the Lamb slain from the foundation of the of the earth, and also the way it talks about the place of work in the Christian life. That it talks about uh, our doing works that were prepared beforehand by God for us to do. So that what you have is all of the activity of the Christian life growing out of this completed work of God. And uh, so that rest really is the root for all the energy of the Christian life. When I'm, when I'm talking about rest, I'm really not talking about a life where you're just sort of, you know, laying around all day and not doing anything. I'm not talking about a life where there's no activity. Actually, rest in the Christian life is very active, just as God's rest is active. In fact, uh, I think about... Jesus' defense uh, when the church, when the uh, uh, religious leaders of his day were accusing him of violating the Sabbath, his answer to them was, "My father is always at his work." It's an interesting argument. It really only makes sense when you when you look at the Genesis account, and if the implication is that God, after He created all things, entered into a state of rest in which He continues. That, that is, God is on a permanent state of Sabbath, and yet in that state of Sabbath, he is always at his work. What, what Jesus is really saying is that God's work is finished, and he's bringing into our experience the, the fruit of that work. I think that's where it starts, that our rest begins with the rest of God, and also then is reflected in the rest that's brought to us through the work of Jesus Christ. Now I want you to talk about beyond the day of rest. So when, when, uh, when God establishes this pattern of the Sabbath, uh, he introduces this dynamic of rest into, into the life of his people. The first thing we need to recognize is that, you know, the Church has, has always been, uh, has, not, has not always had a, a uniform answer to the question of how relevant the Sabbath is to Christians. The churches in the New Testament had a variety of views, and so I so we just have to notice right off the bat that 
that I'm not arguing for a particular position on what you do with Sunday or whether Sunday is uh, uh, a transformed uh, Jewish Sabbath. I'm really talking about this principle reflected in Scripture. And the principle is this dynamic of rest that, through the, uh, through the uh, practice of the Sabbath, was introduced, introduced into the life of God's people. Um, the way I see it is, you know, I think that it's, uh, it is a reflection of, is, is God introducing into the regular operation of people's lives this dynamic that the Bible refers to as the kingdom? That is, God uh, accomplishing his interests in our lives, taking care of our interests. It is actually, in terms of Israel's practice, there are several Sabbaths. It wasn't just the weekly Sabbath. There was a, a Sabbath year every seven years and the year of Jubilee. And uh, it, in all of these practices, in the regular weekly Sabbath, in these more extended Sabbath uh, festivals, one of the dynamics that God required was for God's people to interrupt the, the normal pattern of producing for themselves, you know, of, for example, planting and uh, sowing, or the normal pattern of work by which they cared for themselves. In, in essence, they're really relying on God to take care of their interests. It's something that you see reflected in Jesus' uh, command to the believers to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these other things, the things that we normally care about, what we eat or what we drink or what we wear, all of these things will be provided for us. It's really a reflection of faith. It's a kind of concrete uh, principle of faith worked out in the life of the believer. So when you work it into ordinary practice, um, many of these disciplines of rest that we engage in you know, as, as a part of spiritual discipline, even the observance of one day where we set apart our normal work pattern and devote it to God, there's a kind of faith reflected in that, where we're expecting God to look out for our interests. Now I want you to uh, explain uh, the issue of false rest. What does that mean, John? When, when I'm talking about false rest, uh, I'm talking about the biblical notion of Loss, because one thing you notice about rest, and you see this in our in our own culture, not all rest is restful. You, know, you the one thing that one of the things I say is that you might think of a sloth as rest dysfunctional relative, but in actual fact, it really differs in pretty much every respect from true rest, where you have real rest, true rest, biblical rest refreshes. Sloth has the opposite effect; it drains vitality, it depletes our energy. Rest is a remedy. Sloth, according to uh, several passages of Scripture, does injury to us. It's also, sloth is something that you see that is connected with other sins. So the, the Hebrew notion of sloth really conveys the idea of laxness or slackness. It's, it's a kind of a sin of omission. It's a failure to do what's required of us, uh, what's right and good. There are a couple of passages in Scripture where I think you can see this uh, reflected. One is when uh, God's people, when Israel was, were, when they were poised on uh, the verge of uh, the land of promise and refused to go in, um, you know, there, it's really, an, it's, actually, it's actually a loss of faith at that point. They're not confident enough in God. They're unwilling to take action. But then, interestingly, when when they're disciplined and they're told that they're going to be uh, have to take the detour through the wilderness, then they then they take the opposite course where they try to take a shortcut. So that one of the things that's curious about sloth is it isn't. We usually think of it as sort of this sort of languid, sort of uh, uh, a lazy kind of sin. Actually, sloth can also be reflected in a kind of anxious busyness but you're busy about the wrong thing. So that, um, you know, sloth, I think today you see it reflected in the kind of uh, shortcuts we're taking. We're always, we tend to be looking for uh, quick answers and a quick fix instead of that 
you know, that basic, fundamental, uh, ordinary obedience that Christ calls us. The other passage where you see uh, sloth showing up is in one of Jesus' parables, where he is talking about the, uh, the parable of the talents and the one servant who, instead of, um, instead of using this account, was really a, actually a, quite a large sum of money, instead of using it for his master's benefit, according to Matthew 25, the man who received the one talent said, Master, I knew you were a hard man, harvesting where you've not sown and gathering where you've not scattered seeds, so I was afraid and went out and hid your talent in the ground. Now, if you think about it, it's not he had to actually go to some trouble in order to follow this plan of action. You know, he had to find a place, he had to bury the talent, and the basic problem has to do with his view of the master. He, My guest is John Kessler, the book Radical Pursuit of Rest... More with John right after this on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour here on the new 94.9 FM and AM 950 WTLN. More of the Pat Williams Power Hour in just a moment on the new 94.9 FM and AM 950 WTLN. You're listening to the Pat Williams Power Hour on the new 94.9 FM and AM 950 WTLN. And now, here's Pat. John Kessler is with us from the Chicago area. We're talking about his book, The Radical Pursuit of Rest. Uh, So far, we've covered restless faith, the God who rests, beyond the day of rest, false rest. Now, John, uh, I want you to talk about rest and ambition. Yeah, because I think the question that might, you know, someone might uh, have as they're reflecting on, on this is like, well, you know, doesn't God want us to do anything? Is there is there a place for ambition in the Christian life? Uh, I think two things we need to recognize. First of all, that um, ambition is normal. Everybody has, it's common for us to have a sense of desire. Ambition is really a mode of desire. And there are plenty of places in life where ambition is important. For example, on the athletic field or in business, you know, ambition also has a place in the spiritual life. We're told that we should desire the greater gifts, but there's a there's a dangerous kind of ambition, and you see it you see it in the in the disciples when they're uh, arguing with one another about which of them is the greatest. It's a it's a kind of ambition where we really want to uh, get the advantage of the other person. It's what I would call ambition's dark side. Ambition likes to keep company with the sins of pride and envy. And in particular, uh, pride is that it has its happiest when it provokes the envy of others. And so, one of the things, one of the dynamics of rest is to recognize that. There is a kind of uh, that God is really the one who looks out for our interests. It's not that we don't have ambition. There is a place for ambition, but it's it's the kind of ambition that moves in the opposite direction of the world at large. It's the ambition that wants to see other people advance, and it's primarily an ambition uh, for the kingdom. Let's talk about. The next important topic, worship as rest. Yeah, we don't usually think about worship as a mode of rest, especially the way uh, it's it's practiced in the life of the Church, you know, because we really think of worship as a, as a, um, something that we do. We I think we're even tempted to look at it as a kind of performance that we engage in on God's behalf. In reality, when we enter into worship, particularly congregational worship, what we're doing is we're we're moving into a realm of activity that's already in process. That you know, worship, the trajectory of worship that you see in Scripture isn't moving from earth to heaven. It's moving in the opposite direction. That worship surrounds God. It's it's rooted in heaven. And when we, as a God's people, enter into worship, we're entering into this practice that already exists. Uh, and primarily, you know, what we're trying to do is we're, we're trying to make ourselves aware of the reality of God's presence. 
So we're entering into this experience of God that has been uh, that has been enabled through the work of Jesus Christ. That it's because of what Jesus has done that we can worship God and enter into His presence. Now, John, the next topic: rest in the digital age. I think that's one of the you know the concrete issues that makes it uh, very challenging for us to experience rest is that it's, you know, particularly if you're talking about the, uh, some of the disciplines of rest, like solitude and silence, Jesus, of course, practiced uh, solitude, and he practiced. He went off by himself to pray. There were, there were times when he needed to separate himself from the crowd. But we live in an age where we carry the crowd with us in our pocket. So, you know, we have this, I have this uh, for me, and it's also, it's also becomes tied in with the problem of sloth. You know, I, I have this device in my pocket with a little bell that goes off and tells me when I have an email or tells me when somebody has made some new uh, comment on social media and becomes a terrible time waster. In Jesus' day, when the crowd wanted to find him, they had to make an effort. In our day, they just sort of cook their way into our presence, and so that we really have to take steps in order to uh, find a place where we can separate ourselves from not just the real crowd, but the virtual crowd, and we're really trying to create an environment where we make ourselves aware of the reality of God's presence. Um, and both of those, solitude and silence, silence is also a part of that when, um, you know, we're really never in a place where we're experiencing total silence. Even if you find yourself in a soundproof room, you can hear, you know, you can hear the sound of your own heartbeat usually or the blood coursing through your veins. And when you are practicing the discipline of silence, you're really practicing the art of intentional listening and what you are listening for is you're listening for God. And I think in a digital world, it's, it's uncomfortable to separate ourselves from the crowd and to find ourselves in a place of silence. It takes, it takes I think, actually a measure of effort where uh, we have to find a place where we can do that. It, you know, for some people, they might have to go someplace. I have, a, I have a, a cottage I like to go to that doesn't have good Internet reception or it might just be a comfortable room, and you're not you're not creating space for God. God's already present, but what you are is you're trying to order your world so that you can become more aware of Him. John, it's time now to talk about rest and the future. I think one of the um, greatest obstacles we have when it comes to rest is the this sense of anxiety that we often feel about the, about the future. Um, and when, you, when I was reflecting on this, both in my own life and looking at what the Scripture has to say about it, I realized that the future really has two horizons. There's the near horizon and then the far horizon. The far horizon really is the realm of what we call eschatology. It's the realm where all the promises of God are going to be fulfilled. It's the realm of eternity. And it really is the, that far horizon is where we will spend mo- all of the, the vast, overwhelming majority of our experience. The, the horizon of the, the near horizon is the horizon that we normally call the future, which is really the realm of short-term planning, or what we call actually call long-term planning. And really what we're trying to do is to, uh, in order to enter into an experience of rest, is to recognize that farther horizon, recognize that all the things that we're experiencing right now, the things that we're anxious about, that really they're, they're a very uh, small item on that timeline of human experience and that this future, the ultimate future, the future of the, the kingdom, the return of Christ, and all the promises of the Christian life, that those are moving toward us. And that what Romans 8 tells us is that in the end, what we will find is that all of the things that we, for those who belong to Christ, 
that all of these experience we have, experiences we have had, that God has caused all of them to work together to accomplish His purpose on that far horizon of the future. Now, let's get to this topic. We have about a minute left, John. Final rest, you call it. Yes, and, and that really is the, the ultimate, the rest that we find in God, eternal life. That, that's the end game, ultimately. That's the rest that we're waiting for. And um, it's something that only comes to us as a result of work that somebody else has done for us. What Jesus Christ has done for us on the cross, it can only be received as a gift. And uh, although we are, are very concerned about the things that are going on in the present, in a real sense, it is what we are, we've set our hope on. It's the, the promise that we look forward to and that we're waiting for. John Kessler has been our guest talking about his book, The Radical Pursuit of Rest. Uh, we have a wrap-up, folks, right after these messages. Here on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour, <clears throat> you're listening to the new 94.9 FM. And AM 950 WTLN in Orlando, Florida. More of the Pat Williams Power Hour in just a moment on the new 94.9 FM and AM 950 WTLN. I'm uh, always delighted when you join us. Uh, Nika Maples was our guest in the first half hour from Fort Worth, Texas, talking about her book, Hunting Hope. And then John Kessler from the Chicago area, uh, talking about the radical pursuit of rest. Uh, I invite you to visit my website. It's patwilliams.com, uh, the Twitter page, Orlando Magic Pat. And my most recent book is out. It's called Leadership Excellence, uh, The Seven Sides of Leadership Necessary to Lead in the 21st Century. It's in bookstores and Amazon.com. Always a wonderful way to order books. In the meantime, I hope you have a great day tomorrow at church with your family and a really good week ahead here in Central Florida. We're back next weekend for more on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour on the new 94.9 FM and AM 950 WTLN in Orlando. Thank you for joining us for this week's edition of the Pat Williams Power Hour. Join us again next week at this same time on the intersection of faith and reason. The new 94.9 FM and AM 950 WTLN.